Today's debut episode of Tin House Live is brought to you by the Tin House Winter Writers Workshops. The four winter workshops, one each in short fiction, poetry, nonfiction, and the novel, are now accepting applications for winter 2020. These intimate workshops combine the rugged beauty of the Pacific Coast with a weekend focused on craft and community. Participants stay in the Sylvia Beach Hotel in Newport, Oregon, which offers 21 different literary-themed rooms. This year's faculty includes writing luminaries from Ted Chang and T. Kira Madden to Lydia Kiesling and Esme Weijung Wong, among many others. Scholarships are available, including one for single parents. The application deadline is October 16th, and you can find more information at tinhouse.com. Today is the first episode of a new venture we are calling Tin House Live. Tin House asked if I'd be willing to curate and present audio from the many years of their summer writing workshops. So probably once a month, in addition to the two episodes of conversations you are already familiar with, I'll also be presenting material from the archives, craft lectures given by writers, readings given in the outdoor amphitheater, and panels on certain topics about writing. For those who are Patreon supporters, this additional material will not increase the amount you are pledging per month. In other words, if you're pledging, say, $2 an episode, which is usually $4 a month, the Tin House Live episodes won't count as an additional episode for Patreon supporters. Today's Tin House Live episode is a panel that I moderated at last summer's Writer's Workshop called Vision and Revision, Finding the Life of the Story, with four writer panelists, Jamel Brinkley, Danielle Evans, Karen Shepard, and R.O. Kwan. They all have distinctive voices that are easy to tell apart, but they don't say their names before they speak. So to help you connect who is who, the order in which they speak for the first time is Jamel, Danielle, Karen, and then Reese. Without further ado, here is the panel on vision, revision, and finding the life of the story. Really lucky a year ago um, to incorporate into the Tin House family uh, to what my mind is one of the um, best, uh, liter- not even literary podcasts, but just podcasts um, around, and that's uh, David Naiman's uh, Between the Covers. Uh, if you haven't checked it out yet, um, it's it's a basically a, a craft lecture uh, each conversation, um, and uh, we're really lucky to have uh, David Naiman here today uh, and part of the Tin House family. And if you notice any uh, tension on the stage, particularly between uh, Jamel and David, they uh, were battled last year. We have a, a fantasy basketball league, and they were uh, in the championship, and uh, Jamel destroyed David. Um, <laughs> So if there seems to be any uh, really pointed questions uh, just in one direction, that, uh, that's probably why. But uh, please welcome David Naiman. Thanks, Lance. <laughs> Since we're talking about visioning and, and revisioning and drafting and, and revision, I, I kind of wanted to start with finding out whether our panelists um, saw those as two different activities, because often you hear about, I think most often you hear about 
people wearing two different hats and conjuring two different skill sets when they're drafting and when they're revising. But then occasionally you hear of writers like Amy Hempel who doesn't revise very much or the way she revises explains her revision is it in a way happens before the drafting. She will revise a sentence in her head before she writes the sentence. And so there's very little revision that happens after the drafting. Um, so I want to start with my nemesis, Jamel. Uh, um, because because you've, you've talked about how you subscribe to a version of the writing process of D'Ambrosio, one that requires that the writer distinguish between what he calls the initiating subject versus the real subject or the triggering subject and the generated subject. So I was hoping maybe you could walk us through what that looks like and, and why that's uh, uh, a model that you feel like you, you like to adopt for your own writing. Yeah. Um, is this okay? Can you hear me? I think so. Um, yeah, so that, that idea actually comes from Richard Hugo um, in his book, The Triggering Town. And what I like about it is that it sort of encourages you to, to write sort of a messy first draft, um, a first draft that can court your sort of unconscious or subconscious thinking, and that things appear on the page that maybe don't make sense at first glance, or maybe um, go against whatever your initiating impulse was. Um, But that often, when you look at that kind of messy first draft, there are things in there that show you what the story really wants to be about. My, I think ideally that messy first draft would be a quick first draft. Unfortunately, I write slow, messy first drafts. Um, and I think, you know, you brought the Amy Hempel thing. And I think, you know, what's happening with me is that because I'm sort of writing with a very small sense of what the story is about... Um, I don't have much to guide me. I am sort of revising sentence by sentence as I go just to um, achieve a stability of sound, um, which is the only thing I kind of rely on. Um, but as far as like what comes out in those sentences, um, that's the messy part. So I, I need to get a certain sound that's pleasing to me to get through the first draft, but it's still messy. When I studied with D'Ambrosio also, and, and one of the ways he put it was, that once there is a draft, there's a desire in the draft itself that's maybe different than the desire that, that the writer had when they created the draft. And so it's this switching to listening to the desire of the draft rather than the, the triggering event. Is that, is, is that another way to, yeah, to put yeah, it? Yeah, exactly. So you know, the idea is that sometimes if you start with a certain intentionality and you get a first draft out and that draft veers away from your intentionality, you have a choice. Are you going to try to sort of stubbornly cling to the thing you thought you were writing about? Or are you going to see possibility in what's on the page and maybe um, submit a little to that, um, which is what I tend to do when I'm revising my yeah. work? So if we take that model, I would be curious what our other distinguished panelists, um, whether they see themselves in that or, whether, or the ways in which they don't see themselves in that and, and diverge from that, that way of writing. I have to know what a story is before I can revise it, and the only way that I know what a story is is to kind of write it and see the shape. Um, and that means sometimes revision is a wildly different process depending on where the story is at the end of the first draft. I tend to ask, really, every story that I'm sort of thinking about, whether it's in workshop or my own work, when I get to the end of it, 
what its operating questions are, kind of what the question it promised to resolve is and what the question that it leaves question or questions that it's supposed to leave open are. And I think a draft is done when I can answer those questions, but sometimes I've only answered those questions by getting to the end of writing the wrong story and then I have to basically start over. And other times the sort of draft feels structurally sound and I get to sort of just clean it up and work on the sentences. And most of the time it's somewhere in between. Um, I would, I mean, yes, all those things, yes. Um, uh, I would also say that after doing it for a while, um, I know what my tricks and tendencies and ways of hiding from myself are. So probably in the revision process, I have a little bit of an antenna out for those tricks and protections. So... um, I, I, for example, am someone who is always in their writing and in their life trying to balance control with messiness. I'm sort of a type A personality who likes to be in control, and that's not always a great thing as a drafter of fiction. Um, it, it's better when you're revising, I think. But um, So I'm always look for, looking for ways in which I'm trying to hang on too tightly to something and be too Maria Kondo about things and you know, like let, let things go. Um, I'm also in the revision process. I mean, I think a lot of us do this for the character, especially for the characters who are based explicitly on autobiography or on ourselves in some way, but also just for the characters you feel fondly about, which should be on some level all your characters. Um, In my drafts, I tend to give them a free pass more than I want to in my revision. So one of the things that I'm always looking for, you know, in particular in the process and dynamic that these guys are talking about is where where did I let them um, exonerate themselves a little too much? Where did I not put my characters on the hook? Um, I think, you know, it's one of my my obsessions to think about... um, how characters are responsible for the situations in which they find themselves and and how they're responsible for not getting out of those situations. Um, So in my revision process, I'm I'm the feet to the fire a little bit, both my characters and myself, my tendencies. Um, Yeah, I also find myself agreeing with a lot of what what everyone's saying, maybe maybe, um, everything everyone's saying. I, I usually begin um, with a question or a constellation of questions. And so for my first novel, um, the question, a question I began with was what happens when people hold, when people who love one another, when people who are in one, another, one another's lives um, hold fundamentally different beliefs about the world um, and how can that play out? And then the questions breed questions. Um, and so I just I just keep following the questions and seeing what happens. And so... In a way, that's um, that can be really hard because I, I just I have no idea what's going on. Um, I have no idea who these people are. I have no idea what they want from me. Um, and sometimes, um, like uh, sometimes, I'll just look up while I'm writing in the middle of the night, and I'll find that I've written in all caps, like, "What do you people want from me? <laughs> Why are we here? How am I failing you?" Um, and so it's it, it, it's it's a long process of unknowing for me and. Louise Bourgeois says something, that, um, the, the visual artist that I love, and someone asked her, how do you know when a sculpture is done? And she said, I know it's done when, when the questions have stopped. Um, and so there's that. And just in terms of, um, of, of, of drafts, early drafts, um, pretty much all the way until the end, anytime I'm working on a draft, something that really helps me is to just visually understand that it's a draft. And so I write um, 
I write like a few words at a time, and then I space, and then I press enter, and then a few words, and I press enter. Um, and so at the end, what it looks like, anything I'm working on, if it's an essay, if it's a novel, um, at the end, what I have is like a really long, what looks like a like a sad, ragged, epic poem. Um, and it's not an epic poem; it's it's prose, but it, it looks like a poem. So I, I just visually cannot see it as easily as sentences. And I'm a very pro, I'm a very sentence driven writer, and so I'm just visually incapable of seeing it that way. And I can't, and I can get it over myself just a little bit while I'm drafting. I want to do a more of a, a deep dive into the ways we hide from ourselves in revision and self sabotage and techniques to not do that. But before we we do that, I wanted to step back and just ask a question about form and story shape and whether form plays a role either in the drafting or revision process, whether you have a conception of, of there being a form that you're writing in when you're doing this. Um, I'm going to start with a, a tweet by Danielle. Um, <laughs> that goes, well, that's, <laughs> which one? Uh, that's maybe a segue from... Uh, or in conversation with Samantha Chang's uh, seminar. Many novels are perfect, and many short stories are perfect, and there are many more imperfect novels that should have been short stories than imperfect short stories that should have been novels. And, and similarly, in interviews, Danielle, you've talked about how the coming-of-age stories in your collection map well with the traditional short story form, which suggests that you perhaps have this conception of form as you're writing this particular content. And so I guess I wanted to hear more about what your view of the traditional short story form was in relationship to coming-of-age stories, and then just in general, whether that's something that you're thinking about in terms of how you're pairing um, what you want to write about with a specific story shape. Yeah, I mean, I think ideally for me, form kind of follows for content. So it's one of those second draft questions that I answer once I figure out where the center of the story is. Um, I think I was talking about form in that context partly because the shape of the stories I'm working on now is really different. And and so when I say the sort of classic short story model, I mean, like, at some point, somebody, like, in your life probably drew that, like, what's it called? The, the fried text try. There you go. Um, <laughs> see, you don't need me. Um, the... Um, the sort of idea that like stories have a have a climax, right? And sometimes we're working when if you, if you were at Laura's lecture the other day, she talked about the lovely sort of subterranean of the stories, right? That often the sort of active plot is the surface level of the story, not always, but often. And sort of the emotional plot is what's happening in those in those underneath things, and they those things interact in in different ways. And I think in a sort of coming of age story, they often sort of follow the same arc, right? That, People are making decisions, and those decisions have consequences, not ideally the expected consequences, but somebody does something, and then something happens. So we have a kind of clear sense of causality, and that causality is also where the emotional resonance is, right? I did something, and now I have to understand what that meant. Um, and I think that outside of that model, right, there's a, there's a period of life where the anxiety is about the choices that we make, and there are periods of life where the anxiety is about the choices we don't have, right? And that seems to me to, to need a different story model that you can't sort of impose cause and effect or um, choice and consequence in the exact same way. So people can still make choices and have consequences because otherwise it doesn't feel like a story. But also there are things happening that actually matter that are not at all the things the person has control over. 
And so often the operative plane of the emotional story is following a really different path than the operative plane of the active story, where nothing that matters is actually happening in the active story. Um, all of the story is kind of underneath that. Um, so I've been thinking about different shapes. I've been thinking about the present tense and kind of what that does. As somebody who works a lot with character and who, in the first person or close third, is also thinking about how characters understand themselves and the, the difference between that and how they're actually perceived in the world or how they're actually behaving in the world. Um, that without that sort of secondary layer, that somebody doesn't even have time to kind of process their own interiority or package it for you, the story looks different sometimes, just in the telling. Um, so yeah, I've been thinking about the way that, that character and kind of content shape story. Um, and I don't know that that's related or not related to the question of novels. I think, that, I think that part of that is just a sort of question about people, I think, feel more pressure to turn perfectly good short stories into mediocre novels than to turn mediocre novels into perfectly good short stories. <laughs> so, Jamal, you, when you were on uh, Brad Listy's Other People podcast, you said, all the best short fiction is well-shaped. But you've also said that um, writing longer stories allows you not to be beholden to uh, received forms, to the three-act structure. So mm-hmm. I, I just wanted to hear more about thoughts that you have around, around what well-shaped means when, when you say that, and, and then again, the ways maybe you're subverting it through length. Yeah, um, I think when I say well-shaped, I don't mean that um, stories all fall into one shape. Um, there are a variety of, of shapes that, that stories can can achieve or can aspire um, toward. And I agree with Danielle that I think that that shape is is determined by by the content of the story. Um, you know, so I can remember instances where I'm sort of writing along that arc, <laughs> and you sort of get to the climax, and there's your draft, and you're like, okay, that seems like the story. But then you look at it. And you realize that what I thought was the climax is actually a thing that should start the story. And you sort of go back and kind of rewrite the story, basically. Um, So what I sort of thought was the shape in in the drafting actually isn't the most interesting thing. Um, And so the the process of revising or redrafting is to find um, the appropriate shape. When I'm talking about longer stories, I think that there, there are certain indulgences that that um, I like you know so one of my good friends he's he's sort of um, he likes really sort of terse tight short stories and um, he like he loves William Trevor and I'm always like yeah but Alice Monroe <laughs> um, and, and so we could have sort of had this friendly uh, banter about those two writers and and I sort of think that that um, the more novelistic rhythms and um, sort of the playing with time that you see in a writer like Alice Munro, um, is uh, those things are attractive to me. Or the ways in which like minor characters in an Edward P. Jones story will all of a sudden just sort of take center stage for a sentence or for a paragraph. And it's almost like you could follow them through a portal into their own short story. And I like that because they feel um, autonomous um, but the price for that autonomy is maybe the, shuri, the story getting a little long or a little shaggy. Um, but I think the suggestion of the story's shape is still there. So I'm willing to, to forego a strict shape for um, characters feeling more autonomous and independent. Can I? Can I? Yeah. Just something Jamal just said reminded me, too, of 
Um, that, that sense that sometimes you write yourself to the thing that you're actually most interested in is linked, I think, at least in my mind, to the things that you're protecting yourself from. Mm-hmm. So it's like you're putting off getting to the thing that matters most. And I think I see it a lot in my student writers that also that quality of I've got this one great thing that I'm going to, or, you know, big reveal that I'm going to put right at the penultimate moment or the end of the story or whatever. And, and it's related to that, the, what Reese is saying about the questions. So, so it's like, if you have something really cool, right, or really dramatic or fraught that's going to happen or that's going to be thought or felt, that will give rise to other questions. It doesn't shut down the questions if it's a really good ta-da thing, right? It's going to um, give, so that moving that back up to be, okay, this is where I'm going to start as opposed to this is where I'm going to do my flourish ending is really useful in the drafting process. And usually it has, for me, it has something where I'm like, uh, I was trying to protect myself from having to think about this thing. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move on to back to revision to talk about maybe some of the emotional challenges of revising. Antonia Nelson, in her 10 Rules of Writing, says, discovering how to be happy in the revision process is a giant breakthrough for a writer. And Mitchell S. Jackson has an amazing essay on revision at the Center for Fiction that, I don't know if he's here, but everyone should read that essay, that I feel like conjures an excitement for a revision um, that maybe is is a possible aid towards overcoming anxiety about revision. And I'm just going to read a little quote from it. Revision might include editing or proofing, but will always move beyond them. Revision is seeing the work in progress. Revision is seeing the work in context. Revision is recognizing the parts of a text and how they work to form a whole. Revision is seeing what could and should and shouldn't be there and conceiving of ways to make it so. Revision is discovering what's right and imagining how to make it more right. It's pursuing a new way of seeing and being. Revision is a philosophy. Revision is revolution. So I guess I want to just ask this question. If discovering how to be happy in the revision process is a breakthrough for a lot of writers, if maybe if any of you have stories about um, that breakthrough for you, if you did find that you had trouble moving from the, the freedom of drafting to revision, like when, when Jamel, when you say you, you're moving the end to the beginning, I mean, was there resistance to, to doing that? And were there ways, were there ways that any of you um, uh, learned lessons that became this breakthrough or strategies that became this breakthrough? I hate the first drafts. Um, the first, like, three, four, five drafts for me tend to be really hard um, because, I, because, of the, because there's so much unknowing, because anything could happen. Um, I really, like every other month lately, and it's not going to happen, but every other month, like I'm lying, every other week, I've just been like, could I work with zombies? Like, what about zombies? And I'm writing, and I'm writing like a very like set in the real world novel about like a photographer and a choreographer. But every now and then I'll just sit there and be like, but Reese, zombies, is this a possibility? And it's not, and it's not. But I don't like that my brain just keeps asking me these questions that have nothing to do with what I'm doing. Um, and so I love revision. And my first novel, um, I honestly have no idea how many revisions it went through. Um, it's anywhere between like 40 and 80 revisions. Um, and I mean all the way through because I tend to go all the way through usually. Um, 
And I, I mean, at the end, those were these were some of these were very fast revisions. Um, but still, I went through a gazillion revisions, um, and I'm really happy actually in the fine-tuning moments. And so, when if I have spent, if I've had a glorious um, stretch of time, and if I've had like seven hours to write that day, and if I've spent that day um, moving around some commas, putting in an M dash, changing it to a colon changing one word, then at the end of the day, then I'm like, yeah, that was a, <laughs> like, that was a really good day. You know, like I have done the work that I was put on this earth to do. Um, and so I don't know that I would recommend what I do. I feel so it's maybe, I would, maybe don't do what I do, but, but, but I want to don't, don't move the mic yet because, <laughs> because one of the most popular moments in the podcast last year was our deep dive around all of your techniques, around the way you, you, you before used to, I don't know if self-sabotage is the right word, but you had a belief system mm-hmm. that the beginning of your novel had to be a perfect foundation and that that perfect foundation needed to be set and then everything could be built on top of it. And so you were, for a long time, polishing the first 20 sentences over and over again, but not really progressing in the, in the book. So I would love for, before we talk about some of the techniques you used, which were so amazing, uh, around how not to do that, uh, can you talk more conceptually about how you uh, disabused yourself of the, of the notion that you needed to start with a foundation that was strong to be able to progress in the story? Yeah, um, so I, I sort of think of those first two years that I worked on my novel as lost years, even though... But I also believe that every that it's uh, nothing gets wasted. It's all a palimpsest. If nothing else, like that feels better, right? You're like, I throw away a hundred pages, but it's not wasted. It's in there somewhere. It's fine. Um, but so I spent the first two years just reworking the first twenty pages over and over again, pretty much every day for several hours a day. Um, and I had this idea that I needed a perfect foundation, um, and that if the foundation were flawed the building would be flawed because you can't build a house on a bad foundation. Um, I'm, I grew up in L.A. I live in San Francisco, so I'm, like, very conscious of, like, foundations and earthquakes and what happens if you have, like, a, if you have like a weak foundation. Um, and so for two years, anytime you asked me how my writing was going, um, I, I would just, like, start muttering about foundations. Um, and then I threw it all away at the end of those two years because what I had were 20 pages of the most um, overworked, inert prose that I'd ever read in my entire life. Um, and what I realized was that the, the metaphor was, was supremely flawed um, because you can't build a foundation for a building if you have no fucking idea what the building looks like. Um, and so it's a very different foundation if you're building a one-bedroom um, one house versus a skyscraper versus an opera house. Um, so I let go of that, and then I started going um, trying to write the next... After I threw everything away, I started trying to write the next, like, I don't know. You see, I have no idea. Like, maybe, like, five to ten drafts as quickly as possible. And it sounds like maybe you share something with Amy Hempel around wanting, not wanting to allow bad sentences to stay on the page as you go forward. Mm-hmm. And so you have all of these techniques that you have developed for yourself mm-hmm. so that you can move forward with sentences that maybe aren't perfected yet. Can, mm-hmm. can you share some of the... the like, for instance, turning your computer into a typewriter. Like, why would that be a useful thing to do? Yeah, so I used a program. Um, it, was, it was called Typewriter. It's gone now, but there are other... Um, if you just Google, like, typewriter app 
Mac, then like the, you'll see options. Um, it forced me, it, these app, this app I use would only let me backspace one letter at a time so that I couldn't go back and copy it and like cut and paste and do any of it. Um, I wrote an entire draft in which I um, turned every paragraph, I turned the font white as I went so that I couldn't see what was going on in the previous paragraphs. Um, I wrote a lot of drafts by hand. Um, I, what else did I do? I didn't do this, but a friend um, recommended doing this. Um, he puts a, just puts a sheet of paper over his laptop screen while he writes so that he just cannot see what he's doing, and that way he has to force himself to go through. Um, something else that helps me, again, is visually just to note, I, just so that visually I can see that it's a draft. Um, I, I put in a lot of footnotes as I write, and the footnotes tell me, like, you know, um, so footnotes will say some things like, Physicality, like what are the bodies doing? But then I'll let myself move on. But the phys but the footnotes tell me it's okay. It's a draft. This isn't the finished product. Um, sometimes the footnotes are far more. I was looking at a draft and um, it, like a footnote I had, I'd written in all caps, just do better, Reese! Exclamation mark! Exclamation mark! Exclamation mark! Um, but just anything so that it doesn't look like a finished product. Uh, so, Karen, in, you have an essay entitled How to Make Intermittent and Erratic Progress as a Writer in, in, <laughs> in, 28, in 28 Easy Steps. And one of those easy steps is spending two years researching before you uh, wrote your novel, The Celestials. And I, want, I, I imagine that could be a, a vortex that would be hard to escape from. Like, how do you know when, to, when you have enough information? How does that information get employed or then ignored even though you love the fact? And I was just curious... If you look back at those two years, if you could time travel and, and do them again with what you know now, what you've learned in that process of doing all that research that, in that easy step and in creating that book. So all of these like techniques that we're all talking about, it seems to me that one way of looking at them is the, the vehicle to get to something, and the other way of looking at them is the thing that all writers are really great at, which is procrastination. <laughs> so, I mean, you can think about covering the screen as a thing that really helps you, or doing the white space, or only being able to back up, or my whole control thing, but, but we are ingenious at procrastinating, and so... Um, the dark side of any of these techniques is that you just, they're a black hole that you fall into, and research is certainly one of those. Um, for me, I think it's when I, at least, you know, when I'm first starting with something, it, I'm not thinking about a finished product at all. I was actually thinking about this when Sam was talking about short stories versus novels and what MFA programs do to us in terms of thinking about that. I, I never went into an MFA program or advised my undergraduate students to go into an MFA program to come out with a finished product, whether you're working on short stories or novels. To me, that's not the value of an MFA program, and I understand market pressures are, are encouraging that. But I think if you think about... So when I went into the Celestials, if you think about... Um, I, I'm not even thinking about what this might be finished. I... I had either a series of questions or a topic, or I, in that case, I had discovered that for a period in the 1870s, North Adams, Massachusetts, this tiny town in Western Mass, had the biggest population of Asian people east of the Mississippi, short of New York. And that seemed mind-boggling to me. So I was like, I, here's something I want to read about. So the research to me seemed like, even if I never write about this, 
I, and I read about it for two years, I'm not going to feel like this was a waste of my seven hours a day or whatever. Um, so for me, it, it has to be you're your, your interested in it and not as a means to an end, but an end in and of itself. Um, and that's where I'm drawing the parallel with the MFA. Like, if, you, if you're thinking about your workshop not as a means to an end, then you can workshop whatever you want, and it's valuable, and you're getting to be a better reader rather than... You know, I mean, that's why you should go to an MFA, to be a better reader. Um, so I, once you're in the nitty-gritty, like, I mean, when I did that, I knew nothing about 1870s America, really. I knew nothing about religion, which was a huge role, you know, part in this book. I knew nothing about what it was like to be a Chinese uh, working-class immigrant from southern China coming through San Francisco. I knew nothing about shoemaking, which was the factory that hired these guys. So um, I, I would come home, and I would say to my husband, Jim, who's also a writer, you know, okay, this is an amazing story. I can't do this story. Like, somebody should write this novel, but I can't write this novel. And I would writhe around on the floor, you know, lamenting my, my <laughs> inadequacies in all ways, and then I would organize my closet and then I would you know cook a really elaborate dinner and then I would think okay but tomorrow I get to wake up and read some more about shoemaking or read some more about these Chinese workers or look so um I think you don't ever really know when enough is enough and at some point you just have to say I know enough to write this scene that's how I would do it right like I know enough to write this exchange between this shoemaker and his wife or I know enough to write um, one of the things that Chinese workers did was they used their very meager salaries, a large portion of their very meager salaries, to take photographs of themselves. So they would go to these two photography studios in North Adams and sit for portraits, and that seemed like such a bizarre thing to do. And luckily, um, those portraits still survived, so I had them like on the walls of my study um, staring at me and and I thought who does that like what you know it's questions your questions like what what are they after by those portraits and um and so I can write that scene where they're going to the photo studio and what that American white photographer must have thought of them in their Mandarin clothing you know it's not like he had that in the costume box for the photography studio so they had like one set of clothing that they traded and and wore um it's also I'm looking for those moments in all the stuff you're reading that kind of makes you tingle and go, oh, my God, that's an amazing detail. Like the detail that I want to tell Jim in the evening or that I would want to tell my friends or something. And that's, you know, the stuff as opposed to what you would have to pay attention to if you were a historian. You'd have to pay attention to everything and the stuff that, you know, makes you want to stab your eyes out with boredom. I don't have to pay attention to that. And then I can make the other stuff up. At some point in the research, though, and now I'll shut up, but at some point in the research, you're hoping not to discover new information because your fiction has taken off. You've created the whole world, and then you're like, God, I really hope I don't discover, like, the new historical book about the Chinese factory workers that's going to just blow up my, my world. Yeah. Well, with this idea of am I a good enough writer to do this or can I do this or this is too overwhelming to accomplish – I was, I was wondering if, Jamal, you could talk about transitional drafts, because mm-hmm. it seems like one possible way to go with a revision that um, seems all-encompassing and how to begin. Yeah, so, you know, if you, if you um, have submitted something to a workshop and gotten feedback, or you have trusted readers, or you're, you, know, you get feedback from an editor... Um, 
you end up with all this stuff, right? People are just throwing comments at you, and it can be overwhelming. Um, one way to think about it, you know, and Margot Livesey talks about this, one way to think about it is that, you know, the feedback has given you sort of a heat map of your story, you know? Maybe the exact way that people have responded to your work doesn't speak to you, but you know the places that, that people are getting tripped up on um, or have questions about, and you can kind of go into those areas. Another, another way to think about the specific feedback you get, um, this transitional draft method that David's referring to is, um, comes from, or at least I know it comes from Robert Boswell, um, and he has an essay on it that I think is available online even. Um, and he's, he's way more obsessive about it, which is scary because I'm a Scorpio and I'm really obsessive. Um, but essentially, he, he, um, he sort of, you know, take, you take... The, the mountain of workshop feedback, and you kind of uh, break it down, you look at what speaks to you, and he, he did, from there he sort of makes a list of things that he thinks are relevant to the revision of, of the story. Um, I don't know how this will work for novels, but um, and, and he particularly uh, orders the list from the thing that seems most manageable to the thing that seems impossible. I'll never be able to do that. Um, and there's a reason for that. Because if you, if you start with the easiest thing, it gives you an entry back into the story, right? So you, so you work on, you know, say, the dialogue in one scene. And it feels like, okay, I'm back in here. I can, I can do this. And then you work on the next easiest thing. Um, and one thing he mentions in his essay describing this method is that by the time you get to that thing that seemed impossible at first glance, the other work you've done on the story has actually started to affect, to shape and move towards revising that thing that seemed initially impossible. So it's actually easier now. Um, so I think I use sort of like a, you know, like a, like a bootleg version of, of his transitional drafts method, but I, I do find it useful because it's, it's important for me faced with not only the mess of, a, of an early draft, but the sort of mess of, of feedback to focus. So I need to be able to focus on, on one thing at a time. And I, I find that really helpful. So to some of you, that might be maddening to do it that way, but I like it. Uh, I just want to say for the sake of being contrarian that all of this sounds maddening to me. Like, yeah. I love you all and I love your writing, but like, I couldn't. And, and I say this because I think that like, process is process for you, right? Yeah. Like nobody else's process works for your project. And the idea of isolating any, I'm a really bad compartmentalizer. Um, and I just had to learn to accept that about myself. And I can't work on a project unless I'm working on the whole project mm-hmm. and thinking about it holistically. So, like, covering up the page or, like, trying, trying to identify and list things would, like, it would, it would never work again. Um, I don't know. I, and I think that there's ways in which you have to work against your instincts for discipline. But also, like, mm-hmm. none of us became writers because we love discipline. So like, <laughs> sometimes you just have to, like, wander through the tunnel till you see the light at the end, right? Like. Right. All anyone else can give you is a flashlight. Well, that might be a good segue to ways in which we can enliven our writing that aren't as linear or direct. Mm. Um, Because early on in the podcast, uh, many years ago, I I interviewed Kyle Miner, and he said sort of as an aside that the main thing in his that was transformative for him as a writer was taking poetry seminars. He didn't explain why, and it wasn't the focus of what we were talking about. But over the years, for some reason, many listeners reached out and said that they had followed his advice and that they also found it um, transformative for them, even though they weren't, maybe they were, um, they saw it as permission to try something that wasn't comfortable for them at the time. And I know, Danielle, you used to have a practice of, of choosing one poem 
that you'd read every day for a month. And it made me wonder if re-encountering the same poem um, the, every day was, if that was a practice, even though it wasn't, even though maybe it wasn't even meant as a practice. But I, I guess I wanted to open up, I wanted to hear from Danielle, but I also wanted to hear if, if there are things outside of prose that you go to, to um, that in an oblique way might help you refresh and come back to come back to the work in in the way Danielle describes in a more holistic way that's less analytical and less breaking breaking things down. Alcohol. Yeah. <laughs> which which type? <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, the thing I like, and I, and I should say, I stole that practice from Elliot Holt, who I believe stole it from somebody else, and I can't remember. Maybe they're in the room. So hi, thank you for that. If that was your project, um, but yeah, I did that for years, and then I and then it then it felt too disciplined for me to like choose a poem every month and read it every day. So I abandoned it. But um, but it, I think the thing that I like about going to poetry is partly. And I promise I am getting to your question, but I'm going to back up a little bit because I don't work in straight lines. Like, I think the thing that's interesting to me about the middle of the process, the revision process, is it's the point where the project most clearly belongs to you. Mm. Like, at the beginning of a project, it belongs to itself, and you have to sit there and wait for it to tell you what it is and what it's doing and be patient with it. And toward the end of a project, even if you're still revising, there's, like, there's an editor, and there's an agent, and there's a copy editor, and you can't, like, panic and delete the whole chapter. Like, (laughs) I mean... We'll find out if we can. <laughs> but, um, but so there's a point, I think, where it most purely is yours, even if you're filtering feedback, even if you're making decisions, right, in the middle of that project. But I also think it's sometimes maddening when you feel most in control of a thing you're working on to read other things that are like it. In poetry, I don't know. I think we kind of lie to people when we say that, like, workshops make you a better reader. Like, no one goes to a puppet show to see the strings, you know? I think what we teach you is how to see the strings, and it's great for your writing. It's not always good for like joy and pleasure and not like reading everything in a hypercritical mode. Um, mm. And poetry takes me back to like my purest experience as a reader of reading for sensory pleasure, of reading for joy, of reading for not trying to figure out why I even bother to write when someone is so much better than I am or why I even bother to write when someone so mediocre is getting so much praise. Right? Like I disengage from that process because I'm not in competition with it because it's not a thing I do or can do or want to do. I'm just experiencing it as a reader and, and as a person who appreciates the form. And that in some way reminds me more of what I've been trying to do. I also think that like thinking about language in ways that are not attached to the things that are within your control is just useful. Like seeing the same words over and over again and thinking about what they do in kind of conjunction with each other in a way that doesn't feel like homework or a project makes you think about language in general. Um, yeah, I think po- poetry is definitely something that um, is a part of my practice. Um, before, ideally, before I start, if I have a writing day, if I have time to write on a particular day, um, I like to start by, by reading poetry. Um, and for some of the reasons that Danielle mentioned, I think I'm not at all an expert in poetry. I can't analyze it in any kind of intelligent way. Um, but I love it. And I love sort of that, that unfiltered... Um, attention to, to language and to sound. Um, and to a large degree, it really is sound, which is also why music is important for me. Um, I can't listen to music while I'm writing, but um, having access to music and to rhythm um, is, just sort of makes me sort of you know, feel like I'm in my body. 
um, so that when I go to to the laptop, I, I get you know I, I feel rhythmic. I feel like um, you know with all the things I have to worry about character and scene and blah 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 blah. Um, on a base level, it's it's just do I have access to to sounds, to syllables, to to rhythms, and I find that really useful. Um, yeah, that's really res- both of what you're saying is resonating with me. Um, I, I I feel as though I in a lot of ways. As I'm revising, I'm working toward more and more joy and more and more delight. Um, What I wanted with my first novel was to get to a point where I could open the book um, at random and read any line, and it would and it would give me joy. Um, And it would it would feel, and I wouldn't want to change it because it would be exactly what I wanted it to be. Um, And for me to get there, um, I. I love, I also love um, reading right before, I I love reading at the start of a writing day. Um, I love rereading old favorites. Um, That's, uh, there's one book by Virginia Woolf that um, for about three years I I would read just like a little bit of it at the start of each writing day. Um, And I know you're wondering which book it is and I'm not going to tell you because um, I'm worried that if I tell people what it was that she'll stop helping me. Um, and I know that doesn't actually make sense, but whatever, ma'am. Like, whatever works. Um, and I've been, I'm three years into my new novel, and I still haven't found sort of like that keystone in a way. Um, and that's, that's a real problem for me, and I'm trying to find it. Um, and there's something about... There's something about just revisiting what I love, um, and, and what and the books I really love, the passages I really love. Um, I love them on the 400th read, you know, um, and they yield more and more riches the more I read them. And so rereading has been vital, um, and music too. I also I do listen to music while I while I write. Um, I usually play one or at most two songs over and over again. Um, there's one song that I've played like um, I think like 15,000 times, um, and it still helps me with my new novel. Um, it's still it almost it, it it almost feels to me like like the sound of how I think at this point. Um, just anything to get me more into a state where it, it where um, it's, it's 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 a more meditative state where the anxiety falls away and I can forget where I am and who I am because my best writing happens or not even the best, the only real writing happens for me when I'm not there anymore and I've forgotten I have an eye, I've forgotten I exist, um, and I'm more just like a medium for the words to come through me. Um, I, for me, it's just... Um, so, so for me, the whole thing is a little bit a combination of... Like, like it's a little bit like meeting your your person you're going to spend your life with it's a combination of luck and perception and smarts so i if it's timing and luck i got to put my ass in the chair at some point every day so what to get in that state that everyone's talking about or to have any of these things happen you have to make space literally in your job life or in i have three kids or you know whatever um and and then you know, maybe this is where it breaks down drafting and revising for me. So, so um, the luck and the timing of having something that sparks you or interests you enough to read about it or write about it or put the shitty first draft down or whatever, and then the smarts to recognize what you've got on the page. As Jamel started us out with an hour ago, you know, the the sort of um, interrogation of what you did and what you gave yourself. Um, so, so I don't. Uh, I think 
um, whatever works, right? But but whether it's music or poetry or rereading the things you love or discovering new words. I mean, one of the great things about a week like this is I hear and and people's work who I haven't encountered before. Um, whether it's teaching, you know, workshop or or whatever. But um, at base, I have to make time to for to let that happen. And some people have lives that that's easier for and. You know, I'm privileged not to be making a, a living at my writing. I pay my bills another way. And so there's a kind of release of the stakes of that pressure. Like, I've got to write a short story to sell or I've got to write a novel. I don't have to do that. And so my life allows for me to be able to sit down. And, and I, of course, I sabotage myself all the time about sitting down in the chair. But for me, it's just you have to sit down and, and let all those tricks go to work. Seems like a good place to end. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs>